Tommy McNeil. The United States has vetoed an Arab-backed and widely supported U.N. resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. The vote Tuesday in the 15-member Security Council was 13-1, with the United Kingdom abstaining. The vote reflects the wide global support for ending the more than four-month war, which started when Hamas militants invaded southern Israel, killing about 1,200 people and taking 250 others hostage. Since then, more than 29,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's military offensive, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. It was uh, the third U.S. veto of a Security Council resolution demanding a ceasefire thus far. The World Food Program has paused deliveries of food to isolated northern Gaza because of increasing chaos across the country. In the territory, it's hiking fears of potential store of starvation. A study by the UN Children's Agency warned that one in six children in the north are acutely malnourished. Entry of aid trucks into the besieged territory has sharply declined by more than half the past two weeks. According to UN figures, overwhelmed UN and relief workers said aid intake and distribution has been crippled by Israeli failure to ensure the convoy's safety. And uh, this also amid its advancing assault and a breakdown in security with uh, hungry Palestinians frequently overwhelming trucks to take food. Again, the World Food Program now saying it has paused deliveries altogether of food to isolated northern Gaza. More at voanews.com. Again, voanews.com. This is VOA News. Prosecutors say that a former FBI informant charged with making up a multi-million dollar bribery scheme involving U.S. President Joe Biden as his son Hunter and a Ukrainian energy company had contacts with officials affiliated with Russian intelligence. Prosecutors said that in a court filing urging a judge to keep Alexander Smirnov behind bars while he awaits trial, but the U.S. Magistrate Judge Daniel uh, Alberts allowed Smirnov to be released from custody on electronic GPS monitoring. He is charged with falsely reporting to the FBI in June 2020 that executives associated with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma paid Hunter and Joe Biden $5 million each in 2015 or 2016. Russian President Vladimir Putin has declared that Moscow has no intention to deploy nuclear weapons in space, claiming that the country only has developed space capabilities similar to what the U.S. has. Putin's statement follows last week's White House confirmation that Russia has obtained a troubling anti-satellite weapon capable and also, although it is not operational yet, the White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said it would violate the International Outer Space Treaty, but also declined to comment on whether the weapon is nuclear-capable. Putin said Tuesday that we always have been categorically against and continue to be against the deployment of nuclear weapons in space. He added that Russia only has developed space capabilities the other nations, including the United States, have. 
The U.S. Supreme Court has left in place the admissions policy at an elite public high school in Virginia despite claims that it discriminates against highly qualified Asian Americans. The federal appeals court in Richmond had upheld the revamped admissions policy at the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, frequently cited among the best in the nation. James Samuel Lito and Clarence Thomas dissented from the order Tuesday, rejecting an appeal from parents. The appeals court essentially ruled that intentional race discrimination is constitutional so long as it is not too severe. Alito wrote in his dissent the high court's action followed its June decision striking down admission policies at colleges and universities that took the count of race into effect. Divers have recovered the body of an 11-year-old girl from the state of Texas in a river days after she disappeared. Authorities say they are preparing to file murder charges against a friend of the girl's father. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. over the city center has pushed the issue into the spotlight in recent days. Today is Wednesday, February 21st, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. The United States on Tuesday again vetoed an Arab-backed United Nations Security Council resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. But this time, Washington proposed its own draft that calls for a temporary ceasefire and rejects an Israeli ground offensive in Rafah without civilian protection. It's the strongest leverage yet that President Joe Biden has used towards Israel, a sign that his patience with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is wearing thin. Here's White House Bureau Chief Patsy Wadakaswara with this report. Israel continues strikes on Gaza's southern city of Rafah, near the border with Egypt, where more than a million Palestinians, some displaced multiple times by the war, seek safety. Their fate was discussed by diplomats in New York, where on Tuesday the United States again vetoed an Arab-backed UN resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. It's the third U.S. veto since Israel's military offensive on the Palestinian enclave that followed Hamas' October 7th attack on southern Israel. Palestinian U.N. envoy Riyad Mansour called the move reckless and dangerous. Shielding Israel even as it commits the most shocking crimes while exposing millions of innocent Palestinian civilians to its wrath and more untold horrors. It is not Israel that should be protected by the veto. It is Palestinian children, women, and men who must be protected by this council acting now. 
The U.S. proposed its own draft resolution that calls for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza up to six weeks only after a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas is secured. The U.S. is pushing for the deal with Egypt and Qatar. It also condemns the October 7th attack and makes clear that Hamas has no place in future governance of Gaza. In addition, our draft states there can be no reduction of territory in the Gaza Strip and rejects, as we have before in Resolution 2720, any forced displacements of civilians in Gaza. It also highlights the concerns many council members have regarding the fate of civilians in Rafah, making clear that under current circumstances, a major ground offensive into Rafah should not proceed. Skeptics see the U.S. resolution as a diplomatic ploy that would prolong Palestinian suffering. Israel has warned that unless the hostages held by Hamas are freed by the start of Ramadan on March 10th, it will push on with a ground offensive in Rafah. Every day there are threats and statements. We don't know where to go. However, the U.S. resolution does show Washington's hardening stance on Israel's conduct of the war. This is the first time that the U.S. has proposed a text which really does include some fairly strong implicit criticism of Israel's campaign in Gaza and the situation in the West Bank. And I think that the Biden administration may be sending a subtle sign that it will continue to protect Israel at the UN, but its patience is not limitless. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed not to bow to international pressure. This week, his war cabinet is meeting President Joe Biden's top advisor, Brett McGurk, who will push Israel to agree on the hostage deal and hold off from a ground campaign in Rafah. Patsy Widahuswara, Viewing News, Washington. As we first reported on Tuesday, a Haitian judge has indicted dozens of people over alleged involvement in the 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moïse, including his widow, a former prime minister, and an ex-police chief. Moïse, 53, was gunned down in July 2021 at his private residence by a group of about 20 assailants, most of them... Colombian mercenaries. His security detail did not intervene to protect him. Joining us now to talk about this is VOA's Jean-Robert Philippe. Is this surprising? I mean, these people are the inner circle of his presidency. But first of all, the assassination of the president itself was basically a surprise for everyone. Nobody believed that it would happen the way it's happening. Uh, this amount of people, like 15, that basically the judge say that uh, was most likely part of the assassination or the plot to assassinate the president. We didn't believe that numbers was a lot. We couldn't believe that that's what the way it is. But the judge has the information that nobody basically we don't have access to. So what do you think happens now? Is there enough government left in Haiti to arrest and try these people? That's the big question, basically. All the observers basically are asking themselves. Because the the justice system is basically break down. And trying trying all those people or bring them in court or arrest them will be a challenge 
for those for the system or the justice system in place actually would be a big challenge and everyone is asking the question how that's going to happen even if the police would be able to even arrest these uh, those people that's been indicted in this investigation is anybody speculating as to why they did it well there are a lot of things that have been said but what is the real truth we don't know, except the those really that concern. Maybe they know. Maybe know. Somebody knows. Well, what what about in the United States? Uh, the plot allegedly was hatched in Miami, and they just earlier this month sentenced Joseph Vincent, a Haitian American, uh, to life in prison. And uh, I think a number of others have been sentenced, and some are still waiting sentencing. Right. U.S. is really basically more advanced in this investigation because they've got three of them already in that already sentenced in the U.S. There are about eight others that still in jail and some are in the U.S. Some of them has pleaded guilty. Others are really not guilty yet. Are really not guilty. So we're still looking at uh, how far the U.S. will go with, the, with their part and how far. Haiti will when Haiti will start, and then you are also the former the former senator John Joel Joseph, and you have uh, the Colombian one, which was basically the leader of the group. All these things basically. So we see the U.S. may have more information that probably Haiti do not have. I say probably, and the U.S. may have more information that they should share with the with Haiti. But the finally after all those years investigating the issue. Finally, the judge come out with a, with a result that not everybody is really happy because they believe that he left out some people while he indicted others. So they still have the depend where we're looking at in the spectrum. BOA's Jean-Robert Folip. Prosecutors say a former FBI informant who's charged with making up a multi-million dollar bribery scheme involving President Joe Biden, his son Hunter, and a Ukrainian energy company had contacts with officials affiliated with Russian intelligence. Prosecutors said that in a court filing urging a judge to keep Alexander Smirnov behind bars while he waits for his trial. He is charged with falsely reporting to the FBI in June 2020 that Executives associated with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma paid Hunter and Joe Biden $5 million each. Turns out it was not true. A Russian pilot who defected to Ukraine with his helicopter last year was found dead in an underground garage in Spain last week. Both Ukrainian and Spanish media reported his body was riddled with bullets. The push to get aid for Ukraine passed in the United States Congress continues. And as we hear now from Associated Press correspondent Norman Hall, the newest pitch is how much of the aid will actually be spent here in the U.S. As President Joe Biden pushes House Republicans to pass needed aid for Ukraine, he wants voters to understand that nearly two-thirds or nearly $40 billion of the money for Ukraine would actually go to the U.S., Funds would be used at factories spread out across the country, including plants in Lima, Ohio, Scranton, Pennsylvania, as well as Mesquite, Texas, a Dallas suburb. 
following these other stories from around the world, a Moscow court on Tuesday rejected an appeal by jailed U.S. journalist Evan Gershkovitz against the extension of his pre-trial detention period. Gershkovitz jailed last year on espionage charges that he says is not true. will remain in custody until March 30th. Congo's prime minister resigned on Tuesday, triggering the dissolution of his government. The presidency said in a statement that the prime minister tendered his resignation eight days after validation of his mandate as a national deputy. He will now join parliament as a member of the assembly. Protests by Polish farmers sparked anger in neighboring Ukraine on Tuesday as Kyiv called on the European Commission to take robust actions after demonstrators blocked the border and opened railway carriages that let grain spill out. Warsaw has been a staunch supporter of Kyiv in its fight to repel the full-scale Russian invasion, but protests from farmers complaining of unfair competition have strained ties that were already on edge after truckers blocked border crossings around the first of the year. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange began what could be his last chance to stop his extradition from Britain to the United States on Tuesday. Reuters correspondent Lauren Anthony reports that his lawyer is saying his case was politically motivated and a concern to journalists across the world. A two-day hearing starting Tuesday could be WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange's last chance to stop his extradition from Britain to the United States. U.S. prosecutors are seeking to put the 52-year-old on trial on 18 counts. They relate to WikiLeaks's high-profile release of troves of confidential U.S. military records and diplomatic cables. Speaking outside the court in front of a crowd demanding his release, his wife Stella said his case was politically motivated. There is no possibility of a fair trial if Julian is extradited to the United States. He should never be extradited to the United States. He would never be safe. The United States plotted to murder my husband. He is being accused of journalism. This case is an admission by the United States that they now criminalize investigative journalism. It's an attack on all journalists all over the world. It's an attack on the truth, and it's an attack on the public's right to know. Julian is a political prisoner, and his life is at risk. She also likened his case to that of Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition activist who died in prison on Friday while serving a three-decade sentence. United States prosecutors argue the leaks put the lives of their agents at risk and that there is no excuse for his criminality. Lawyers for the U.S. said their case against him was consistently and repeatedly misrepresented by Assange's legal team. But Assange's supporters hail him as an anti-establishment hero and a journalist persecuted for exposing wrongdoing. Assange's legal battles began in 2010. He spent seven years in Ecuador's embassy in London before being dragged out and jailed in 2019 for breaching bail conditions. He has since been held in a maximum security London jail and even got married there. His extradition to the US was eventually approved in 2022. His legal team are trying to overturn that approval in front of two judges in what could be his last opportunity to prevent extradition in English courts. 
Assange himself was not in court nor watching remotely because he was unwell, according to his lawyer. Edward Fitzgerald says if convicted, Assange could be given a sentence as long as 175 years, but it's likely to be at least 30 to 40 years. If Assange wins this case, a full appeal hearing will be held to again consider his challenge. If he loses, his only remaining option would be at the European Court of Human Rights. Reuters correspondent, Lauren Anthony. VOA's International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. While a lot of the fentanyl that makes it into the United States passes through Mexico, it now looks like Mexico itself is facing a growing fentanyl crisis. Reuters research finds that the opioid is growing in popularity across Mexico, especially the northern part of the country on the border with the U.S., Here's Reuters correspondent Diane Toe. The fentanyl crisis has so far not swept Mexico like it has the United States, despite Mexico being a major trafficking hub for the highly addictive painkiller. But research by Reuters shows fentanyl is creeping further into Mexico now, although the scale of consumption may be clouded by a lack of data and testing. That gap in knowledge concerns Maria Elena Ramos, director of the social service organization Compañeros. We don't have evidence of fentanyl. So this worries us a lot. Because if it passes through Mexico, some of it must end up here. And if it's on the streets, this affects people who are in difficult conditions. Homeless people, those without the means to go to emergency services. Mexican authorities have classified fentanyl as an emerging drug because of an uptick in users seeking treatment, with related figures remaining relatively low. According to the most recent available data, opioid users made up less than 2% of the some 168,000 people who sought drug treatment in 2022. And in 2021, fewer than two dozen opioid-related deaths were officially logged. Compare that to the U.S., where potent synthetic opioids like fentanyl cause tens of thousands of deadly overdoses per year. But Reuters has found that more than a third of Mexico's 32 states lack equipment to detect whether the drug is present in corpses. Mexican health officials have publicly acknowledged gaps in the data. The nation's Addiction Commission director, Evelinda Baron, who also oversees mental health, says it comes down to a matter of resource priority. She admits fentanyl is a concern, but insists Mexico is less predisposed to an epidemic because it does not have the same history as the U.S., of prescription pain medication abuse and heroin consumption. The use of fentanyl is not a public health problem now. We hope it won't be. We must bear in mind, the opioid crisis started in other countries and that it had to do with the use of drugs for pain. In Mexico, Fentanyl consumption takes place at border zones because of that phenomenon. 
However, some researchers argue that what data they can collect point to a possible growing epidemic. Fentanyl showed up in nearly a quarter of corpses tested since June 2022 in the border town of Mexicali, according to state data. There are concerns of people consuming it unintentionally, with studies finding fentanyl cut into heroin as well as party drugs like cocaine and MDMA. And as analysts say criminal groups are diversifying their routes, studies show the opioid emerging further away from border areas all the way in central regions like Mexico City. Julian Rojas, who works with Compañeros, says the authorities' dismissive attitude is a problem, especially since it means people don't have access to life-saving drugs in cases of overdoses. Talk that in Mexico there isn't fentanyl consumption, or there's minimum level consumption. This puts the user at a greater risk as it continues to make them invisible. The government doesn't recognize the use of Maxalone as a drug to revert opioid overdoses. This puts the users of drugs that circulate on our country's streets in a more vulnerable condition. Still, officials are sounding the alarm, including through a public information campaign warning of the powerful drugs' risks. Mexico's president said in January that while fentanyl consumption was low, the country, quote, has to be careful of it, adding that he was seeking more information about its use in different states. Reuters correspondent Diane Toe. And finally, protesters gathered on Tuesday in Cape Town where what they call a death ship carrying thousands of cattle is docked. Reuters correspondent Christy Kilburn reports the foul smell caused a stink in the top tourist city. Protesters in South Africa's Cape Town rallied against live animal exports on Tuesday. A foul stench wafting over the city center has pushed the issue into the spotlight in recent days. The source, according to a local official, a vessel in the harbor with 19,000 cattle on board. Animal rights campaigners call it a death ship. You know, we just get to, you know, be a voice for those that don't have a voice. Why do animals need to suffer in this way? There is another way to do this. The Kuwaiti ship is traveling from Brazil to Iraq. The local port operator said the Al-Kuwait was docked in South Africa to pick up animal feed and medically assess the cattle. The animals are enduring awful conditions, and that's what's causing the smell, according to the National Council of Societies for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or NSPCA. The group's inspectors boarded the ship on Sunday evening. One said several animals had to be euthanized due to injuries. The cattle had been on board the ship for over two weeks now. The last estimate from the local port operator suggested the ship would leave Cape Town later on Tuesday. Reuters correspondent Christy Kilburn. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone here at VOA, thank you so much for being with us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.
In Venezuela, the regime of Nicolas Maduro has stepped up its assault on human rights. It has arrested one of the country's most prominent human rights activists and ordered the local United Nations Office of Human Rights to close. On February 9th, Rocio San Miguel was detained by authorities as she and her daughter were waiting for a flight to Miami. San Miguel is head of the non-governmental organization Control Ciudadano, which focuses on issues concerning the armed forces, human rights, and security. The Office of Venezuela's Attorney General said San Miguel was being charged with treason, conspiracy, and terrorism. Several members of her family were also detained and held for days before being released and told they could not leave the country. National Security Communications Advisor John Kirby said the United States is deeply concerned by San Miguel's arrest. He noted it comes at a time when President Maduro needs to meet the commitments that he made back in the fall about how they're going to treat civil society political activists as well as opposition parties. A reference to the Barbados Agreement, signed by Maduro and opposition parties in October, in which Maduro pledged to work toward free and fair elections in 2024, including by allowing opposition leaders to run for office. Local and international human rights organizations condemned the arrest of Rocio San Miguel. The UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights expressed deep concern over her detention and urged her immediate release and respect for her right to legal defense. Days later, the Maduro regime ordered the local UN Office of Human Rights to close and ordered staff to leave Venezuela within 72 hours. In October, when President Maduro signed the Barbados Agreement, there was a glimmer of hope that Venezuelans could restore democratic rule in their country. Since then, however, the Maduro regime has arrested journalists, civil society activists, and former members of the military. Venezuela's leading opposition candidate, Maria Corinne Machado, has been disqualified from running in the presidential election. The United States, as National Security Advisor Kirby said, is watching developments in Venezuela very, very closely. The United States stands with the Venezuelan people in their desire to restore democratic governance and calls on the Maduro regime to release all political prisoners and return to the roadmap established by the Barbados Agreement. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States.